Hello and welcome back to Talk Evidence with me, Helen McDonald, Content Integrity Editor at BMJ, Juan Franco, GP and Editor-in-Chief of BMJ EBM's journal, Evidence-Based Medicine. Hi, Juan. Hi, Helen. Hi, Duncan. And, oh, Juan, you just ruined the surprise. And Duncan <laughs> Jarvie, he's back. <laughs> <laughs> Multimedia Editor um, at BMJ, making a... Uh, surprise appearance we had to pay him a lot of money to come back uh, since joe's not here hi duncan hi there i don't think i can quite step into joe's uh shoes i'm not that much of a big data nerd but uh i can ask questions and i think that's going to be useful today So without further ado, I'll tell you what we've got coming up this month. Going a bit abstract to artificial intelligence, um, it's coming or in fact, actually, it's already here. And I spoke to BMJ's chief technology officer to understand more about how it all works. There's potential for benefit and harm um, to enhance content, but also it could be used as a means to produce low quality uh, content um, and even be involved in misconduct and Duncan and Juan will be questioning me on how we investigate allegations of misconduct um, or poor publication practices at the journal. Indeed I think when you say there are uh, poor quality that sounds quite euphemistic so we'll find out what you actually mean by that. Some of these challenges are illustrated by a high-profile case um, which recently came to head in Italy regarding artificial tracheal implants. So yes, Paolo Maccarini. Um, you've probably all out there heard of him because this story has been going on since at least about 2008. Um, so if we go back in time, that was when stem cells were kind of what large language models are now. Um, essentially, Everyone was very excited about them. There's this enormous potential um, to answer everything uh, in health, but no one had really quite figured out what to actually do with them. Uh, then along came this Italian surgeon working at the Karolinska Institute in Sweden who said he not only figured out how to use them for organ transplants, um, specifically the trachea, and this was when they were using um, donor uh, windpipes from um, cadavers, which they stripped of the uh, cells to leave the scaffold and then um, used stem cells to kind of, or patient stem cells to repopulate uh, that scaffold. Um, so not only had you said you'd figure out how to do this, but had also um, successfully transplanted these back into humans. Um, now, with many things, that seemed... Too good to be true, and it was. And in 2016, uh, the Karolinska Institute convicted him of fraud and misconduct around um, that research. And he was also facing multiple criminal charges for harming the patients involved um, in this research as well. Uh, Though he was only actually um, convicted of one of those charges in the end. well, kind of what makes this relevant to this broader discussion we're having uh, is that there's this investigation in the BMJ that we published a little while ago, um, which is about how the story still so- doesn't seem to be, you know, fully in the open. And that's kind of not surprising because it's up to Karolinska Institute to carry out 
all of these investigations and you know publish them um and obviously there are kind of incentives of reputation preservation at play here uh and um instantly also with other institutions which uh are in the kind of web of connections between this doctor and uh other teams around the world um and so the investigation is really calling for independent investigations to take place and um coming back to what we're talking about even more you know sometimes people do come to the bmj to uh talk about issues to to reveal issues um in research and that's kind of where your job now is helen uh looking after our research integrity well i call it content integrity because it's not just about research um and and it is you're right very much part of my day-to-day so i do i do find it fascinating um and I, I think I frame it slightly differently. And I think misbehavior and misconduct and things going wrong are definitely a part of what I do, detecting and preventing breaches of integrity. But also on the flip side, what I'm much more interested in is actually raising the bar on the quality of content that we produce and trying to create a better culture around not just research, but the way the evidence is used and discussed to shape clinical care and to shape policy. Um, and I think all of those things do relate do relate to each other. You've just set yourself a, a small task there, Helen. Just a small task. So what you know? does that actually look like on a kind of day-to-day basis? So day-to-day cases, problems, questions, pre-publication, post-publication um, are a large tranche of the work that I do day to day. So some of the things that we'll be looking into include disputes between authors about who did what, plagiarism, falsification or fabrication of research, um, conclusions that aren't based on the study's findings, sort of misrepresenting information, undeclared conflicts of interest, refusal to share data if you've said that you're going to share data, um, consent and ethical questions, um, just a kind of repository of um, all queries that no one else really wants to deal with, but which I, which I find quite quite interesting. You see how I made the leap from being a GP <laughs> into this. Um, it, it's a kind of repository of, of anything goes, you can ask me anything. And then interestingly, some bigger themes within publishing and particularly the advent of things like paper mills so organizations that offer sale of authorship or publication services for a fee which across many publishers are um, giving rise to the submission and or publication and sometimes then retraction sometimes at huge large scale of content which is um, not genuine Um, so there's there's the cases And then there's all the things that you learn from the cases and from scanning out on the horizon of what's going on in the world. So there's policies and processes, there's teaching and training of internal staff, of editors in chief, there's scanning, looking for those opportunities um, and threats out there. And And the way that that happens at BMJ is really shaped by a number of key things. We're shaped by our mission and our dedication to patients and the public and to want to improve um, health for everybody. We're also shaped by 
ethics, ethics of clinical medicine, publication ethics, um, research ethics, and by standards either which are set by by the industry or that BMJ um, have themselves. So, for example, we have standards um, which are which are shared more broadly that clinical trials should be registered, um, and we only publish trials that have been registered. Um, some policies are more bespoke to BMJ. So BMJ has a policy that we um, won't publish research, um, which is funded by the tobacco industry. Um, and that's a more um, a more a more local uh, policy to us at uh, some of BMJ's journals. So, so there's going on. Yeah. And there's a big mix here. Um, as you say, that that sort of pre-registering your trial, that's a thing that everyone should do. But the tobacco research is a very BMJ policy. Tobacco still funds research. There's nothing kind of illegal about that. And as you're talking there, there is this kind of perhaps lack of distinction about what um, a publisher can deal with, should be responsible for, um, and what an institution or an individual researcher or maybe even, I don't know, uh, an organization yeah. like the GMC should be kind of responsible for, for policing. So it makes a quite sort of messy landscape you're standing in. It does. And I think, um, you know, evidence and research is an ecosystem and we are just one little corner of it. Um, and we have to be realistic about what we can achieve alone and what we can achieve together uh, with others. In general, when I'm approaching cases, I think the first thing that I try and do is to really understand what the nature of the problem is. So really define the issue or issues that you are dealing with. So be clear, is it a allegation of falsification? Is it an allegation of an authorship dispute? Unless you can get that problem really clear in your head, you're going to start to flounder and get lost. And then really the approach from there, I, I find is helpful to try and understand the context, like where is this coming from? Who is raising this concern? Why are they raising it now? Um, is this a very active policy area? Um, is there some political context which which is important to understand? And then really with that context, um, to then sorry, to then proceed in quite a neutral sort of interested manner where you want to gather information from the relevant parties, including the authors, it might include the institution, it might include the complainant, try and establish what information can be shared and generally I work on the principle that if information can be put out in the public domain right from the beginning then it should be so if somebody writes to us and says they have a complaint about an article and they think it might be fabricated and this is why if it's actually possible to push some of that stuff onto the rapid responses the electronic comments that are linked to the journals then we do do that there are obviously constraints around legally what you can say such that things aren't defamatory but it is actually possible with wording things carefully to have quite open and quite transparent neutral conversations about concerns without getting defamatory in many cases in many cases. <laughs> um, one, you've crossed over from uh, making research to editing research and, and suddenly thinking about all of these different kind of ethical issues. 
I'm just wondering, how are you finding it? How's uh, being an editor changed the way you're thinking? Well, I think it's a little bit unfair on the editor sometimes, um, especially because uh, Helen framed it as being um, a focus on content, but research is part of a larger ecosystem. And I wonder... Um, so how all of these publishers, not only the BMJ, many publishers have um, created institutions regarding um, or sections of uh, of their business on research integrity, but how much the other parts of the puzzles are doing the same. In the sense that, for example, if you have an, uh, a university or a research facility that has an, an IRB that uh, provides, for example, ethical approval and monitoring, it's usually mostly restricted to clinical trials and some part of the conduct of clinical trials. But it seems to be that there, there's not um, an oversight of the whole process from the conceptualization and what happens when the trial is over. Who is responsible in the institution to check whether the, the dissemination of that content is done um, ethically? And... And I, I feel that there's a gap there. And I, I imagine that perhaps my question to Helen is, do, do you think that some of the institutions are catching up on this and saying, oh, there's research integrity in journals. Perhaps we should be looking at research integrity at our universities, our, our research facilities a little bit more in depth? I think, I think definitely. I think you can see that. In essence, I think there isn't at the moment, to the best of my knowledge, a body that you can go to um, to give oversight of everything. So the responsibility is kind of disseminated a bit between everybody. Um, and I think one of the hardest things when you're really investigating difficult problems, um, major allegations, or you're really having difficulty establishing a productive dialogue with the authors and or the complainant about what's going on as a journal, it becomes very difficult because I don't, I can't compel anybody to send me anything or to speak to me in a certain way. The only um, sanctions, I guess, that really I have the ability to do is to advise that an editor rejects uh, the content pre-publication. That would be the sort of worst mm -hmm. case scenario. And we, and we say, look, we're so worried about this. We're going to write to your institution or post-publication. The sort of worst outcome that could happen is that your, your content, um, is retracted um, but that post-publication space is particularly is particularly difficult because the bar and the threshold of proof that you need to really show that content has reached a threshold of being so unreliable that it needs to be removed um, is is quite difficult and I and I do think there is um, there are challenges um, with reaching the right people, um, establishing who's responsible, putting that in an international context where research, research teams might be disseminated across a number of institutions and or countries. You may be dealing with some countries where um, internally, you know, our integrity team is small. Uh, we don't have knowledge of how every country and every region operates some of these integrity uh, matters. And I think it's a huge um, challenge for institutions to uh, on one hand be supporting their researchers and their colleagues and wanting to uphold the good standing of their organization and at the same time being asked to investigate sometimes in quite a critical or quite um, 
a difficult manner uh, things which have gone on in their institution because obviously individuals uh, it could be just an individual particular rogue individual has done something terrible but there are often systems that allow those rogue individuals mm. to have achieved that so it may be that the universities feel a bit defensive um about some of the perhaps processes or mm. checks and balances that they should or could have had in place to stop something like this happening and there's also conflict of interest right because if you have a Nobel laureate researcher in your institution you don't want to go against it right no i think that must i think that must be very very difficult and i think it it can be difficult when very serious questions are being raised to keep that bigger picture in mind. And that's what I do when we're working through um, our concerns. I try and keep in mind patients and the public, the trust in science, what is the right thing um, to do here? Um, and I think it it is inherent on everybody who's involved in the ecosystem to try and keep that bigger picture in mind because trust in science and the information that will shape people's future care or recommendations um, for public health is very important. And uh, just to sort of move us on a bit, I think um, that ecosystem, that trust in science, understanding what's going on in people's motivations is one thing, but then um, this advent of uh, AI tools to help with it, the black box that happens there must make this all much more complicated, Helen. It does. Artificial intelligence or AI is uh, relatively new uh, on the scene. Um, new things always cause a bit of worry. There's a fear of the unknown um, and how how things are going to change, whether that's going to be for the better or for the worse. And artificial intelligence and AI is something that I've been thinking about a lot recently. Many publishers have been thinking about a lot and Quan in your research capacity, I'm sure you've been thinking about it um, as well. And we wanted to focus in on that um, issue uh, in this month's episode. And I've been talking to Ian Mulvaney, who's the Chief Technology Officer for BMJ. He also has a key role on the board at the STM Integrity Hub, um, which is a kind of industry uh, organisation supporting um, good, good practice across publishing. And I asked him to explain for us, to spare you me trying to explain to you um, what artificial intelligence is and what it might mean for the world. Ian, thanks so much for joining us and for bringing your uh, BMJ cup of coffee, which you're flashing at me on uh, Zoom, um, for to, to come and talk to uh, the listeners of Talk Evidence. Um, so I wanted to pick your brain, and can you tell us very succinctly what is a large language model? All right, Helen. So a large language model is a tool that's been built over the last uh, couple of years to help predict next bits of text. Now we've mm. all interacted with stuff like this over the last couple of years. If you think about autocorrect in word processors or on your phone. And increasingly those tools are starting to do grammatical correction uh, in even more sophisticated ways. Well, these new large language models do a fairly similar job, but just at a much, much larger scale. And that increased scale is what has turned out to be really interesting because all mm. of a sudden the tools at that scale have 
demonstrated or show capabilities that have been very surprising to people and very powerful. Uh, Tell us so about some look, of those capabilities. Yeah, so um, previously when we built um, AI systems, we had to do a lot of very specific training on a particular task. And one of the capabilities that these tools have is that you can, without any prior examples, ask it to do something for you and it will just get on and do it. And so you can ask it to summarize a text for you. You can ask it to rewrite text for different audiences, say, for example, for primary school child, a secondary school child, university student. You can ask it to do translations. You can transpose text. You can get it to write text in the style of Shakespeare, in the style of Donald Trump, all without any previous examples. And it's that ability to do things from the get-go in a kind of zero-shot effort uh, with high fidelity and high capability that has suddenly made these tools very powerful. So in other words, it's like a kind of super multilingual editor of some kind. That's that's like what what one capability it has. Yeah. What about starting from scratch where you don't have anything at all? Could it do that for you? Yeah. So uh, if you can give it a prompt, you can ask it for some ideas. And it's been trained on so much text that it's already seen that it will start to give you answers that are similar to questions like yours that have been asked in the past that it's been trained on. And to give you some sense of that, the data that's been trained on, we think the largest model has been trained on about 400 terabytes of data, which are multiples of the amount of language that any human will actually acquire throughout their whole lifetime. And so the, the amount of text these things have seen, basically almost every piece of text on the internet, gives them a good starting point to give you good suggestions for the thing that you ask it to start with. But equally, when you ask it something, it, it's producing a statistical model, so it'll go and make up a lot of that stuff as well. Uh, and so you've got to be very careful with the text that it generates. You've got to be, you've got to be un understanding how do you verify that? Uh, how do you make sure that the task you're asking it to do can be trusted? Uh, but at the same time, it can do really open-ended tasks in a way that no previous computer system has been able to do. And that really lowers down the barrier to the kinds of tooling that we can imagine with these systems. And I'll give you one very simple example. You know, you could ask it to write a poem. You could ask it to write uh, a paragraph about its perspectives on some strategic aspect of healthcare, but you can also ask it to write software that will actually operate and run. And putting that in the hands of people who've never been able to write software before could be really transformative. Hmm. So what are the benefits and harms of this type of to technology that uh, computer, am I allowed to call you a computer geek? Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll take that. Yeah, You'll take that. What, yeah. what, what are you all talking about? Uh, so, I'll tell you two things. Uh, so firstly, just in the general day-to-day -day aspect of the work that we all do, there's a lot of schleppy work that goes on. There's a lot of kind of writing reports, churning through documents. And I just read today a report in the New York Times saying that many doctors in the US are starting to use these tools to help write up patient reports. And so a task that previously would have taken them two hours, which was eating into their home time at night after their kids had gone to bed, it's taking that task time down to about 20 minutes and it's stopping a significant amount of burnout in the medical profession and that's just in the last two months so for any of us who have to do that kind of reporting uh document summarization as part of our day-to-day -day tasks this could be a magic wand that takes away a lot of that burden of work which could free up more time for us to spend thinking about what we're doing rather than the doing of what we're doing that's on one side of the equation on the other side of the equation, and I think this is the area that affects my area of, of business quite a lot, is people are talking about this as the Gutenberg moment for software. 
Today, every piece of software is written by hand. Our entire world economy, all of the digital information that is flowing, the internet itself, all of the code that underlies that has been written by hand by people sitting at keyboards. This is a tool that could significantly augment the creation of software. Could be like that moment that the printing press came into Europe. And people remember, I think the printing press was very swiftly followed by the 30 years war. So, so we're expecting some level of disruption that this sort of thing could cause. Yeah. And thinking closer to home, to publishing away from the rest of the world and uh, software and thinking about our authors, the information they send to us, our readers and our users who look at our educational content or look at research that they've seen published in BMJ. How do you see or what, what are the uh, potential uses for AI technologies and these language models in particular within that um, content zone? So these these large there's a lot of different types of generative ai out there there are ones that can generate images for you that have become really popular over the last year or two but these large language models work with text and all of research is text we 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 think about the experiments we do we turn it into text peer review is text the stuff we report on we do it through text so there's almost no moment in in that arc of how we translate the work researchers do into how it's consumed that these things might not have a role to play in and they, they could be both positive or negative so on the negative side it certainly opens the door to making it much easier to create fake research and there's a lot of pressure in the ecosystem to get published and if you if you can lean on something that helps you get past that barrier for your career progression we know that's going to happen and that's something that we have to look at but on the flip side we think are there opportunities here to help people who have English as a second language? Could it really help them get over that barrier of bias that we know exists in the editorial process? And, and those are things that I think today we're very well aware of, we think are really grounded, very plausible. But there's more as well to think about as, as well. Uh, right now, when you read the literature, you're capped by the amount of attention you can bring to what you read. Could these be tools that act as assistants that really help you magnify the amount of literature that you can scan over at scale? Can that be done in a trustworthy way? Can that be done in a way that that is easy to use? And, and that's an area that is much more speculative, but also quite exciting to think about. The worst part, uh, I mean, uh, well, uh, that, that I was imagining while he was explaining the uses of AI, for example, uh, physicians writing reports uh, using AI, and I'm just thinking it's going to be very dystopic in the future if AI writes the reports and you have AI on the other end reading reports and no one, no human is actually doing both ends of the communication, right? So, uh, but one of the things that he did mention, and perhaps I want to highlight, is that the, the language uh, inclusivity uh, mm -hmm. aspects of it um, is always something that I've been, um, of course, I'm, everyone knows I'm, I'm a Spanish speaker. Um, that's my first language. And now I'm working in Germany. So I understand how it's... I mean, you've made your life hard. You're crying <laughs> yes. out for some AI assistance here, wow. as well as your own natural human <laughs> talents. And and I think that it's 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 I mean for me it's fascinating to navigate throughout these languages, but it is true that it's substantially 
um, difficult for 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 scholarly for participation in academia for people whose English is not the first language and even for people whose English is the first language sometimes they, they struggle getting their ideas through and uh, and it's good I think it's it's very interesting to think that perhaps AI would allow us to have more time to think about our ideas rather than how to write them um, in, in a certain way and um and if so for example in the future we can focus more on the ideas and you run into um um a peculiar editor that doesn't like your writing style then it can be rewritten in the writing style but with the same ideas you know so um because a lot of the editing and and the needy picky editing line editing has to do with with the writing style and and rather than the ideas and i think that if we can overcome that with ai i find it absolutely fascinating of course it comes back to the content integrity part that we've been discussing uh before do you how how do you think that we need to plan for this i hear a policy coming up Indeed, we have been writing a policy and a lot of publishers have been thinking about a policy. Um, and, and our one is going to look at our approach, BMJ Journal's approach to content that's been shaped by artificial intelligence. And I think just at a very high level, um, the key message is that we will consider content for publication in which AI technologies, particularly these large language models, LLMs, chat GPT and the like have been used but only if we think that its use is reasonable and it's been clearly described. And how, how do you write a policy without sounding it like, tell us if you use word processor? So I, so I think when you're kind of getting at um, what or examples where BMJ may feel more or less comfortable um, with the use of AI. And I guess at the moment, what the policy, what I had to do in writing this policy is to think that in effect, we have profound uncertainty about how AI will be used and what impact that will have. We know some of the things that Ian mentioned, um, some of them that the accuracy of the text and the references that is produced by AI can be unreliable. Um, and there are big, broad challenges around the degree to which AI can be accountable and responsible for content, the degree to which it is original and of high quality, and the potential for misconduct or for misinformation, either deliberately um, or, or unintentionally. And so in creating the policy, I've, I've tried to leave room for both that benefit and harm to come about. And where we can't anticipate or say up front, yes, we'd be happy with this or no, we wouldn't be. What tends to happen is that we develop our view and our approach over time. And it's going to be shaped by all of those things I mentioned. It's going to be shaped by clinical ethics, research ethics, what um, what becomes accepted amongst the industry, as well as what we find acceptable, shaped by those things of, is it helping patients and the public? Is it making a difference? Um, so I think to get back to your example that you raised, word processing, so language improvements, my feeling is that it's going to be relatively uncontroversial to use it in that way. That's a clear benefit. We're enabling people to produce content 
where they couldn't perhaps before or produce higher quality content which they can better communicate so when we think about the mission that's an easy yes it's also likely um, as we can see in word processing programs that they are already starting to integrate artificial intelligence probably without us knowing so you get autocorrect and as you're typing on word it predicting what you're going to say next so i think there'll be some degree of ai that becomes very ubiquitous and undetectable and people don't know that it's there um, i think where it becomes harder and if we come back to the journal world and think about what does it mean to be an author and what does it mean to produce high quality content if you look at those authorship criteria the icmja criteria which are often used the cases which I hope that editors will send to me to help them think through include those where AI is contributing to the conception and the design of the content, to the acquisition, to the analysis and interpretation of data, to the drafting of the ideas in their work and the critical reviewing of their work rather than, as you were saying, Juan, those kind of stylistic things which are less about the ideas and more about enhancing the communication which is very which is obviously very important too mm. i think um as you're saying that helen one bit that ian said that sort of particularly stood out that i think is kind of key here is that um about large language models kind of understanding of the truth and the fact that that's not even a thing that is kind of integrated in there which is quite hard I think for us to intuit because they seem so you know human in the way that they um they produce text but uh, uh expecting them to to be able to yeah discern some truth that hasn't had human mediation um seems uh not what they're doing at the moment and I think that's the other thing which is very central and very critical to our policy and also this is reflected in the position statements that have been produced by um, the World Association of Medical Editors and by the Committee on Publication Ethics, which are both some of those bodies that shape our policies and shape the way that we approach things. And something which is very key is that no one thinks that that an AI piece of software can be an author. And it's for that exact reason, because somebody has to take responsibility for the quality and the ideas and be sure that those are that those are right i i i'm i wanted to um to push back on two things that were said about the idea of truth Would, wouldn't you say that um that sometimes authors without ai struggle with their understanding of the truth in the sense that, I mean, there are people that <laughs> believe that the earth is flat, right? I mean, and uh, and there's a, a famous cases in the uh, of, of people spreading misinformation about the COVID vaccine in the later uh, that perhaps we don't want to amplify in the, in the podcast, but people have a, a weird relationship with the truth in general, uh, right? I think that's right. I I think that's right, and I suppose what we have to distinguish is we know and we understand human content quite well. We know that there are things which are more or less certain based on evidence. And we know that people form opinions to some extent grounded in that evidence, but also shaped by other factors. We sort of understand intuitively how humans might be behaving. I think the thing with AI 
is it is going to produce its own sort of unique footprint um, and it's not going to be shaped by emotion and strong feelings it's going to be shaped by it's just making errors at random or it's making errors based on things and trends that it's seen so i mm. think we don't we don't yet i don't think or at least i personally don't have a good sense of the sort of footprint of what bad ai looks like in some of the examples that i've read i mean i've read a, a, a couple of examples where i have been looking at some content um to offer um, editors advice and i have had this sense that i'm reading ai generated text and that was quite an interesting experience and my observation was that the text was very was too perfect the sentences were refreshingly mm -hmm. short they conveyed sort of only really one idea the paragraphs were divided up quite smirking now at me on zoom <laughs> in other words the the language the way the language was put together was just too good but it was the ideas that were poor so i was reading this text and ultimately at the end of it i was like i don't get where you're going with this you you've talked very eloquently about some of the issues but it's it does it lacked the direction that um you would expect from a human generated piece of text now that may be because they you know whoever did it wrote in very bad prompts and they they weren't specific enough about what they requested um but yeah it, it's an interesting it's an interesting issue what what bad ai yeah, will look it's like. epistemology isn't it humans think about how they're thinking mm -hmm. and i don't know maybe the next generation of uh, ai will start to do that as well uh, and and can i ask uh, helen do you think about could some of these problems be solved by AI? For example, one of the problems we have right now with authors is that they plug in fifty references, um, and and some and some of the times the claims are not um, aligned with those references, and and sometimes we don't. I'm not sure. I mean, we have this yeah. um, linking system with Web of Science and, and so on that checks the references whether they're true or not, but some, some of the references aren't traceable. Perhaps can AI help us with editing and checking whether the reference says what they say and whether they're real? I think you're, you're raising a kind of parallel point, Juan, which is really a, an interesting one, um, and, and this relates to our work as editors, but I think it will relate to many other people's uh, work as well that ai has the potential not just to shape the content which we publish but actually change the way in which we do our jobs as editors or the ways in which we operate as publishers and i think that's a really fascinating question could ai help us to fact check content to check the validity of references is the thing that's being referenced actually claimed in that piece is the study design actually does it sort of warrant the level of claim that they're making? I think you've had some really interesting ideas as well about um, reviewing content using AI. You know, many journals struggle to get enough reviewers to get quality reviews. Um, could we use AI to review the content? And what, what would we ask uh, of AI? Could we ask AI to translate the content so we could increase the pool of reviewers who might be able to do the work um, when it's translated. I, I think there's just so, there's so much potential for what could be done. Um, and I think we just have to 
try and find some way to to work through the possibilities beginning with those which are um pragmatic that are safe to do that are potentially very impactful i think it's always quite important to remember that like editors are humans with <laughs> human failings as well i always remember helen do you remember this paper from years ago about citation perversion oh yeah but this was a someone who went back and traced the citation route of um through i can't remember what the uh, the exact um fact was but just seeing at the point where a negative study got referenced as a positive outcome erroneously mm. or you know who knows why it was a bit like chinese whispers in effect but with citations <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> instead of instead of whispering it to the person sitting next to you and seeing how much the message changed this guy had gone back and and looked at how the message of a paper in effect had been distorted as it had been cited and recited and sort of influenced over time and uh, as you say you know that is a job that ai could do fairly easily take us back to the truth well, computer exactly <laughs> but I, I suppose this is going to have a, a massive effect helen for you what happens down the line if we find out that um oh this whole citation tree is wrong and actually you know that undermines the whole point of the of a paper that we've published and has gone on to be cited um or, you know, you mentioned earlier on paper mills, you know, what happens if it turns out that uh, uh, this entire paper was made up, the data was uh, entirely fictitious, but it got into a systematic review, which then got into, you know, kind of laundered that um, that information later on. It's, it's going to unpick a lot of things for us, isn't it? You should consider changing teams. Duncan. You want to move from multimedia to to my integrity team. I feel like maybe we're just uh, <laughs> we should hand that off to Juan as our systematic critique reviewer to uh, think out. You just sort that one out, Juan. Yeah, I think we need to we need to, to think that a lot of how we can hand over uh, all of the parts that we can make mistakes. I I, I was editing the manuscript uh, on the last couple of days and. And he had been reviewed by so many people, and it was the final final version. And I was looking at it again and again and again. I realized that one of the outcomes was not reported, that it was planned. And I realized, how could it be that it failed to all of these people, even myself in the previous round of reviews, we have failed to notice this. And I think that all of these technologies could be very good at being doing this type of mechanical you know that the, the chart I, feel, I sort of feel sometimes like i'm doing the, the we're doing as editors the job you know like the modern times i feel <laughs> like the movie so in the future uh, we can focus more on the, on the important part and and perhaps that if those inter systems could be integrated in the whole going back to the first conversation we had about the the ecosystem of research is it possible so if we're saying that some researchers are going to be using AI to fabricate a content and um, or writing a lot of rubbish text, so perhaps the whole ecosystem needs to be powered up with AI to, de to detect sort of the checks and balances. And, uh, and I, I worry that if we are not more proactive in that sense and try to incorporate some of the tools to, to counterbalance that, we're going to be swarm, uh, um, 
uh, flooded with all of this uh, fake data and fake content and with, with little tools, with little human tools to battle it. I think you should fade this one out now, Dunk. Well, I think that's probably enough uh, for this month's episode. Uh, Helen and Juan will be back next month talking about who knows what, but giving us some in-depth detail about the world of evidence. If you've enjoyed listening to this um, and you want to hear that, make sure you do subscribe. We're available on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or pretty much wherever else you're going to be looking for podcasts these days. Helen, Juan, it's been a pleasure being back on Talk Evidence this month. Good to see you. It was nice to have you back, Duncan. I'm sure our ratings will reflect your return. <laughs> bye, Juan. Bye. And bye, Helen. Bye. Take care out there. <laughs>